Dear friends, it is my privilege to introduce to you the portion of the scripture called the Beatitudes uh, found in the Sermon on the Mount. And we pray that uh, this word may sanctify us and bless us together. Now, as every realtor is aware of an, a very important principle in sales, the principle that the context in which the house is found has an impact on the value of the property. Now that is also a principle that applies to the value of the scriptures that we discussed. The context explains much of the portion of the scripture. And taking a scripture out of its context and just taking it by itself is like uh, examining a finger by only looking at the finger without the connection. Yeah, instead, we, we would determine the value of a finger by looking at the whole hand and the relationship to the muscles and the nerves and the tendons and the arm and the shoulder and the whole body. So before we take a close look at the Beatitudes, which are the nine statements beginning with blessed are, found in Matthew 5, verse 3 to 12, we need to first start with a bird's-eye view of the context. And the context here is the Gospel of Matthew and the context of the Sermon on the Mount in verses, chapters 5 to 7. So first then, the context of Matthew's Gospel. Matthew is writing primarily to Jewish ears. The New Testament church was at first primarily Jewish. They estimate that shortly after Pentecost, there were an estimated 20,000 Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And these Christians experienced the first level of persecution from fellow Jews, sometimes family members or other Jewish neighbors, who accused them. And they accused them of being unfaithful to the Old Testament scriptures or on the teachings of the forefathers. So Matthew was called to, to write to these Jewish Christians to encourage them and to show them that the charge is false. They were not unfaithful to the Old Testament scriptures. So Matthew presents Jesus Christ and his teaching as the messianic king and his kingdom as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. So when you go through Matthew, you find about 65 Old Testament scriptures quoted. That's more than any other author in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Now within Matthew's Gospel, you find him emphasize Jesus' words. Matthew records six of Jesus' Gospel sermons. And you will notice them, recognize them as each of them ends with a statement similar to the one you find in the end of Matthew 7, when it reads in verse 28, and it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, and then another ending of that. But that statement marks the end of a sermon. And in the sermons that Matthew has recorded of Jesus, there's a common theme the theme of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. That theme was the burden 
of Jesus' ministry. Matthew noticed in chapter 4, verse 23, and Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching the, king, the, the gospel of the kingdom. So the kingdom here is a major theme that is uh, also very closely related to the Beatitudes. You'll see that in uh, chapter 5, verse 3 already. The first beatitude is linked to the kingdom of heaven. And actually in the beatitudes, Jesus identifies the genuine citizen or subject of the spiritual kingdom of Jesus Christ. So that, that much about Matthew's context. Now a little closer, the context of the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. The sermon begins with, an historical comment and seeing the multitudes, Jesus went up into the mountain and when he was set, his disciples came unto him and he opened his mouth and he taught them saying. And then comes this masterful sermon which William Perkins called the key of the whole Bible. For in this sermon, Jesus Christ opens up the summary of the old and the new and he brings them together. So, in the rest of this lecture, I'd like to share with you some five general comments about the Sermon on the Mount that I think will be helpful to show you how majestic this portion of Scripture is and how it also relates to the rest of the Beatitudes we will look at together. The sermon is very important. And for these five reasons. First, in this sermon, Jesus Christ presents himself, focused on himself as both the Lord and the Savior of the kingdom. The Lord Jesus came on this earth with one mission, to do his Father's will. And his Father's will was, of course, very varied, but one purpose of his father's will was to destroy the kingdom of the devil. 1 John 3, 8 tells us, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. And these works of the devil are like a kingdom, a kingdom that operates in hatred and evil and bitterness and violence and selfishness and destruction. That is opposite to the kingdom of Jesus and the restoring of the peace and the joy. So Jesus' ministry is to build this kingdom, and not just nationally. This is beyond boundaries. This is a kingdom among all the nations of the world. And you will notice as you read through uh, this uh, sermon, as well as the rest of Jesus' ministry, he emphasizes kingdom over 100 times. Jesus speaks about the kingdom only twice. He speaks about church. And that's significant. And what does Jesus mean with the kingdom? What does he think of when he speaks about the kingdom of God? He thinks of the, the way of our life. And it begins here in the heart. And as it is in the heart, it radiates into our life, into our actions. Our attitude becomes action. And again, Matthew 4, verse 17, which reads, from that time, Jesus began to preach. And here he starts with saying, 
repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So there is repentance of sin to enter this kingdom. So the kingdom, friends, is a way of life. A way of life that begins here and that will continue into the future new earth, wherein all the citizens are the subjects of his glorious kingdom, living and dwelling in perfect righteousness. And already that is indicated in Matthew 5, verse 3, the first beatitude, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, what is the church in this all? The church is the pivot, the center. You'd say the weekly church gathering is when the captain of salvation gathers his kingdom soldiers together uh, to teach them. In these gatherings, he encourages them in the battle. He corrects them. He might stir them up to take up the battle again, or he may comfort them as they have experienced defeat. That's the church, weekly gathering, studying and reading the word and in fellowship with one another. And through that, the Spirit nourishes, strengthens, expands the kingdom. But then after having heard that word, he expects all his followers to go and to do the kingdom work and to live out the kingdom life wherever we are placed, to be his laborers in the kingdom. So again, if you think about the kingdom life, everything and every aspect of our existence is included. Now that begins with how you think, the renewing of the mind about God, how you think about yourself, how you think about others, how you think about the world. The kingdom is how you use your time, how you use your mouth, your money, how you manage your relationships uh, with Obviously, your family, your marriage, with your church family, with your neighbors, and even with your enemies. So different. Love your enemy. How do you handle those who failed you, or those who offended you, or those who want to make use of you? All that is part of the kingdom life, and many of these aspects come back in the Sermon on the Mount. And therefore, Sometimes the Sermon on the Mount is called the Constitution of the Kingdom of God. Now Jesus teaches us, secondly, that to be part of his kingdom is to have a personal relationship with him. And there's a startling end to the Sermon on the Mount, which I want to first call your attention to. If you read it yourself from chapter 7, verse 21 to 23, he sketches a an encounter of people at God, with God. And Jesus teaches here that the Christian life is not just a life of knowing things, but living relationship with himself. And Jesus makes it very clear that no one is a Christian by simply doing Christian things or reciting Christian truth or preaching Christian messages or doing Christian things. We only are a true Christian when we are united with Jesus Christ by faith as a fruit of the work of the Holy Spirit and begin to reflect this in how we are from our insight towards our daily interactions with others. 
And therefore, to underline in importance, back to the beginning of the sermon, Jesus begins the sermon with the Beatitudes. Now, there is no scripture, in my opinion, that more clearly defines who is the true Christian than these opening statements of the Sermon on the Mount. And as we experience the sovereign and the gracious power of God's reign in our life, and this teaching will change us to become like the beatitude man or woman. Now thirdly, Jesus is teaching us by this uh, opening section of the beatitudes as it is amplified in the rest, the absolute necessity of regeneration to be part of his kingdom. Except you are born again, he says to Nicodemus in John 3, you cannot enter and you cannot see or enjoy the kingdom of God. And though you do not find anywhere in the Sermon on the Mount the word regeneration, he defines in the Beatitudes the born-again, regenerated citizen of his kingdom. <clears throat> so therefore consider this sermon of Jesus as a major correction of the Old Testament teaching gone wrong. And you hear him say it often, ye have heard that it was said of them in old times. In Jesus' days, in, in the Jews' days of Jesus' time, um, to be a genuine, saved person meant to be living up to the right standards, and they were rigid. A means to keep a list of all kinds of do's and don'ts, and you earned your way to God by that. Now, in Christ's kingdom, the heart becomes first before the behavior. And the Lord shows that it is not by doing all kinds of things that we earn our way. He, his kingdom teaching is about Christ and what he has done. That earns the way into the presence of God. And so the emphasis on the internal and the heart relationship with the Lord and who we are is not new. 1 Samuel 16, 7 reads, the Lord sees not as man sees. He doesn't look in the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And that is still the way that God also today wants us to consider ourselves looking at the heart. And this portion does that. So to Jesus, Christian life is first being right, the heart, which is followed with doing right. And that is the way we live. And both to be right and to do right is really a beautiful and simple definition of the biblical key word, righteousness. Now, fourthly, Jesus addressed in this sermon an issue that is as much needed today among Christians as it was needed among the Jews of Jesus' days. The issue of superficiality or surface religion. The issue that Jesus called white sepulchre religion. People that look religious and orthodox and traditional and rigid, but really on the inside, they're full of dead man's bones. Uh, what does he mean with that? The attitude of pride, being selfish, insincere, hypocritical, all out there for power, for status, for your own honor, 
Yeah, that is the dead man's bones. Now that superficiality was heavily promoted in the Jewish culture. When they reduced being godly to measuring up to a whole list of outward standards set by the scribes and Pharisees. And though, of course, if you look to the scriptures, there are all kinds of outward standards also that God wants us to uh, maintain. He keeps on reminding us that the heart is more important in a relationship than all the uh, outward things. Now think about your marriage. Your marriage relationship is not defined by uh, the rules you keep, the standards you uphold, the behaviors you display. It is the heart that is merged together in a commitment of love uh, to one another. Now, and the health of that relationship and the quality of the heart of that relationship, of course, is maintained by the standards and high standards that will protect the uh, relationship. But it's first the heart, then the uh, rules and regulations, as it were, uh, that keeps it protected. Now, that is so also with genuine Christianity. To be a Christian is first and foremost to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ, who has raised you from your spiritual death. And that phrase, the spiritual death, is a term describing our spiritual separation from God or our spiritual divorce from Him, which is dated back to Genesis 3.6, when our forefathers Adam and Eve uh, rebelled and fell away from God and we with them. Now, if that spiritual relationship is not restored, then our Christianity is only, uh, just only, an adopted creed we try to live. But if it's a relationship restored and a heart renewed, then it becomes an, an adopted son or daughter who lives a devoted life uh, to the God who saved them out of this horrible plight of life. And that's what Jesus is after. So the error in Jesus' days uh, remains the problem for us today. What the Jews did, we do today. It is devastating to Christianity when we are holding it simply or defining it by living in a certain creed and living by a certain standard or holding certain traditions. No, friends. Genuine Christianity, according to the king of the kingdom, is a life that is devoted to God and to our neighbor. While we are trusting upon the king and upon his work as the savior, as the only ground of our acceptance with God. And it is Jesus himself who in John 13, 34, 35, really hammers down that emphasis. Listen to his word there. It says, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another. Well, that's already an Old Testament commandment. But the newness of the commandment is that you love one another as I have loved you that ye also love one another, like I did. And by this, he says, shall all men know you are my disciples, if you have loved one to another. So you notice this aspect of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount 
makes it timeless and searching, some even confrontational for the answer of who is in the kingdom or who is saved or who is a genuine believer is not if you measure up to a certain outward standards, if you appear Christian, if you have a certain creed that is good, if you're faithful or successful or religious. Now, it is if you measure up to what the Lord describes the citizen of the kingdom to be like as he writes and describes in the Beatitudes. The seven Beatitudes are heart issues, are inner attitudes. And all seven, they are the unmistakable uh, fingerprints of, a, of the Holy Ghost. And all of this, this, this searching of the superficiality, it comes to a startling climax in Jesus' words that no doubt were felt like a shock uh, to uh, the original hearers in Matthew 5, verse 20. Imagine all these people standing there. They're all been, they're all been bred to revere the scribes and the Pharisees. These are the examples of, of ultra-godliness. These are the spiritual giants of the day. They're church leaders. Everyone revered them. And Jesus' words must have been like a hammer blow when he says, verse 20, For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven again. You shall not enter if it doesn't exceed. Now the word exceed does not mean if you add more layers on top of each other. That's what the scribes and Pharisees did. Now, exceed means has to go deeper to the heart. And you see that the steady diet of this teaching of the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes and the really intensive law teaching Jesus did in this sermon is confrontational, yet profitable. Uh, it will not in, give an increase in the numbers of Christians, but with God's blessing, it will surely enhance the quality of Christianity, and that may also become a tool of evangelism, isn't it? Now, the last observation is that Jesus gives us in the Beatitudes an unmatched model by which to examine what is genuine Christian experience. There's a great variety in genuine Christian experiences, as there is a variety uh, in the woods, all the different trees, one wood. No one who has come to know Christ and the glory of his teaching and has been converted from a lifestyle uh, of unchristian to Christian is similar to another. Look at the contrast. Matthew, Levi is his name in the scripture story. And how he was called by the Lord compared to how Saul of Tarsus was called, who became Paul, the author of many epistles. Take John the Baptist, an evidence of new life before he was born even, to the thief on the cross, a man who nearly dead before he comes to Christ. Think of Jesus' mother Mary, uh, sweet mother as it were, 
And then a demon-possessed Mary Magdalene who was also brought into the kingdom. Or I see a serious-minded Nathaniel sitting under the fig tree. And I see the wild Corinthians and Ephesians who come to Christ. Now we have a tendency to emphasize a dramatic conversion as more real. And that is not biblical. The power of God is not only in an eruption of a volcano. The power of God is seen in a little flower or even a blade of grass. Both amazing, both powerful. So, back to this, Beatitudes then and the Sermon on the Mount, the uniqueness of God's work is that no matter what kind of way God saved you, or no matter what the circumstances were you went through in order to come to know the grace of God and Jesus Christ, every regenerated soul is able to identify him or herself in the Beatitudes. And if your heart is not sketched or outlined in these seven, number of completeness, Beatitudes, yeah, you miss this necessary spiritual character needed to be part of God's kingdom. And therefore, as Jesus opens his sermon on the mount, he purposely with this outline of the citizen of the kingdom, again and again emphasizing that the renewed character comes before the task of the Christian. First, who are you? Then what are you? The salt, the light. Behavior follows and change of heart. Now, after this uh, overview of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we are ready to take a closer look at the Beatitudes. And may God bless this teaching and make us all a blessing to others with what we have so far learned already. Thank you.